have you ever been a stumbling block to someone around you? Okay, so like when, when I say stumbling block, has, has anybody ever tripped over the way you lived your life? Like, uh, I know exactly what you're thinking. You're like, oh, I've heard that sometime uh, before. Like Romans 14, I shouldn't cause anyone else to stumble by the food that I eat or the things that I drink, particularly in Romans 14, wine or other things. Have you ever caused anybody to stumble? Okay, I'm not going to make you raise your hand. I, I was just, just kind of, you know, doing that because I have. But uh, so here, here's the deal is I'm not asking it that way, though. See, you're thinking, oh, have I ever caused anyone to stumble by my sin? I'm actually asking a question have you ever caused anyone to stumble by the way you lived your life in holiness? Not in sin, but in holiness. Because as we look uh, at the scripture today, we're going to look at one who causes others to stumble, meaning that he is a rock of offense. So we're continuing uh, a series today in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, we're going to be looking at the one who is the rock of offense, the chief cornerstone, the one who causes other people to stumble. And as we look at him, we're going to be reminded that Peter is writing to a group of Jewish believers who are running for their lives. As you enter into the book, we realize that they're heading to um, lots of different regions. And they're running because of Nero's persecution in Rome. As he's the emperor, he's going to accuse Christians of many things. Ultimately, he's going to accuse them of burning the city of Rome and uh, destroying much of what the... Uh, of the Romans knew they're going to be accused of a lot of malicious things. And so here it is. They're running for their lives. They're trying to find uh, some sort of refuge. And they're going towards caves and catacombs. They're doing anything they can to run for their lives. And here's what I want you to realize is that Peter is writing to them. And he goes, now, as you run for your lives and as you feel persecuted, I want you to do more than find refuge in caves and catacombs. I want you to find refuge of the one who we proclaim to put our hope in. And that is the one which we have craved for and ultimately the one who has given us salvation and the one whom we've built our foundation upon. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to see that this one is the chief cornerstone. And he goes, but you also need to know that he is the one in which provides salvation and hope. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, Cody a couple of weeks ago kicked off this series and he just talked about that. As Christians, we are going to endure hardship and persecutions, and there are going to be times in which we oftentimes look around the world and we're going to wonder why they hate us so much as Christians. That in a sense, we're going to cause others to stumble because of the way we live our lives. Now, then you continue on, and Brian talked about last week, that as you continue to live for God, that you should still see, even in the midst of the persecution, even in the midst of hard circumstances, even in the midst of trials and, and things that in some ways give you much grief and pain in your life, that you could still see that the Lord is good. And we see in First Peter chapter 2 that you should taste and see that the Lord is good. And that if he is indeed good, that it should lead us to some things in our life. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn with me. We're going to read the first three verses uh, that we actually concluded the message with last week, but I want you to see them again. And in 1 Peter 2, it literally says uh, in verses 1 through 3 this, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. So if you have tasted the Lord is good, meaning that you know that he is the one who laid his life down for you and that you have found salvation in Jesus, then you should begin to do what? Put away malice. And that's 
In the sense that the anger that you saw Peter chop the, the, the soldier's ear off in the Garden of Gethsemane, you should put away deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, all things that Peter, the guy who's writing this book, an apostle of Jesus, a disciple, has struggled with. But he says, as I put my faith in Jesus, as I followed him with my life, as I've tasted and seen the Lord's good, there are several things that I began to put away. And he goes, these are the things that I used to do formerly when I looked to my own resolve, to my own leadership of me leading my life in the flesh. But he goes, then, verse 2, like newborn infants long for the, the pure spiritual milk, a, a spiritual milk that helps you to grow up into your salvation. And so here's what I want you to understand. God gives you salvation through Jesus Christ, and he indwells you with the Holy Spirit. But then as you crave the things of God, get this, you grow up in your faith, and you're what? Sanctified. And as you're sanctified, you long for the pure spiritual milk ultimately to grow up and eat what? A big boy steak, right? Now, if you're a man in here, you tell me, what would you rather have tonight? Would you rather have a steak on the grill, or would you rather have a, a bottle with some milk? And the answer is, right, you, you want a steak. And the reason why is because we grow up in a salvation. And so look at verse 4. As you come to him, meaning Jesus, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And so here it is, as you come to him, him being Jesus, you see this, there is a living stone, one who is rejected by men, but chosen and precious on the side of God. So here it is, Jesus, the one chosen by God, precious and dearly loved, was rejected by men. John chapter 1 says that he came and he dwelt among his own, yet they did not recognize him. Even the Jews would reject Jesus as who he was in terms of the Savior of the world. They wouldn't recognize him and his messianic promises and his hopes that he had offered Israel long before he ever came as the incarnate birth through the Virgin Mary. So here it is. He's on the scene, and yet he is the living stone that's going to be rejected by men. But here's the good news. Even though Jesus is rejected by men, and even though you may be rejected by men, if you were chosen and precious before God, then you have something to celebrate. Amen? And it says, now you yourselves are like living stones and are being built up into a spiritual house. So the spiritual house is a reminder to you that you and I no longer have a temple in which we have to go to. It's not a building that we go to per se. Now, we've said that from the beginning, and I remember in the early years at Stone Point, we used to baffle people. Like, we don't care if your children run in our building. Like, there's no reason for you to stop them and go, hey, don't run in here because you're disrespecting the temple of God. No, you're not. And the reason why is because we know, according to Acts, that we no longer live or go or worship, what? In a temple built by human hands. 
And so here it is. He says, you yourselves are like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. The Jews had to go to a temple and it had bricks and mortar. And there was a high priest who would enter in on the behalf of the people. But you and I, we don't have to go to a particular building or a place for worship. Why? Because you and I are being built up into a spiritual house. So you and I, if you proclaim the goodness of God in your life, if you followed him for salvation, you are a living stone being built up into a spiritual house. Now, let me ask you a question. How many stones does it take to build a house? A bunch. But every single one of us who proclaim the goodness of God sitting in your seat are a living stone. A living stone all being put together, built together by God into a spiritual house. Not a house built with brick and mortar and stone, but a house that's spiritually built together as we have one foundation in Jesus Christ. And so you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's all that means there. And so our temple is spiritual, not physical. It's not a building. It's not a place. It's not a steeple. It's a people. It's a people that is a holy priesthood. Look at it. Verse 5, you're not just being built up into a spiritual house because you're a living stone, but you are also a holy priesthood. You are the priesthood. See, oftentimes we think about our faith. You think about the way you were raised. You think about anything. If you have a prayer request, you got to go to the pastor. Hey, if, if you have uh, something going on in your life, then you got to have a mediator, right? And so you got to go to the pastor. You think, oh, i got to go to the priest. The priest has it all together, so I'll go to him. Now listen, I want you to understand that when God rebuilt the spiritual house, when he went from the ideals and the Jewish times of a temple with you a high priest and the priestly tribe of the Levites, when he moved away from that and made Jesus the high priest, he made all the living stones or anyone who proclaimed God as savior, not only a living stone, but he says, Peter goes, you're also a priesthood. Meaning that you have a pastor in your church, but I'm not more priestly than you. Like you even think about it. They think about some of the things you've said before. Well, pastor, I mean, I, I don't get me wrong. I believe in God, but I'm no saint. Well, the scriptures say that you are a saint if you believe in God. If you have put your faith and hope in Jesus, you are a saint. And not only are you a saint, but you're a royal priesthood. You are a people set apart from God. So the question is, is then why in the world do we pay you to pastor? And that's a great question but I'll give you a good answer. Number one is because you're a gracious people. You're gracious people. You allow me to shepherd our church and you allow me to pastor. But listen, I don't pastor because somehow I have a telephone line to God that you don't possess. I don't pastor because somehow I've figured out how to become more holy than you are holy. I pastor because God has given me a gift in this simply to equip people to become better spiritual stones built into the house of God. So my only job is Ephesians 4 is to what? Shepherd the church and to equip people to do the good works of God. I, I don't, I'm not more scholarly than some of you. A lot of you in here are far more smart than I am. Uh, there's a lot of you in here that you probably have a greater devotion to God than I do, and I've got a lot to learn from you. The difference is, is that God called me to equip the church. And so listen, I could work at Home Depot and I could do that. I could go into the business sector and do that. The difference is it's not, it has nothing to do with about money because listen, ministry doesn't pay all that great. But what it does do is about God's calling on my life. 
And so God's calling on your life may look a little differently, but all in all, we're all a holy priesthood. And so I am trying to call the church to greater measures of action, and I'm trying to equip people to do that action. And that's all my calling is. But my access to God is the same access to God that you have. Why? Because we are all priests. And so get this, Israel had 12 tribes. One tribe was the priestly tribe, and that was the Levites. They had greater access to God than the rest of them. But in the Levites, there was only one man that was one time a year, he was the high priest. And that high priest, he was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies on one day a year on the Day of Atonement, and he had the greatest access to God. Now you don't have that. What you have is a bunch of priests who have access to God at any time, and it's through one high priest, and his name is Jesus. And that's what this simply says. So we are a holy priesthood, and what do we do as a priesthood? We offer sacrifices, right? Think about it. The, the, the priest in the Old Testament, they would have to offer sacrifices. On the one day of a year, the Day of Atonement, you had one who would offer the blood of bulls for his family. He would have all of his sins forgiven. He would go into the Holy of Holies one day a year to ask forgiveness for the entire nation, and he would sacrifice the blood of, uh, of goats. And he would have his, li- his life cleansed before he ever did that, walked in, and then ultimately he would ask for forgiveness for the sins of the nation, and they would slaughter a goat that lambs... Blood ultimately would, would uh, overcome the, the nation and their sin for a year. But get this, we don't have to do that anymore. So we don't sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats. Interesting enough is even Jews who have rejected Jesus don't sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats now. And the question is, why not? And I have a theory, and it's this, is not only do they not have a temple because it was destroyed in Nero's day, AD 63, 4, right here when Peter's writing this book. But also, why would God allow the Jewish people to sacrifice like they formerly did when the greatest sacrifice ever done is finally complete? And that's what Jesus says. That's what he's showing us through Peter. And so we offer sacrifice through what? Our lives. Look at it. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so we have been built up into a spiritual house and God gets the declaration of his praises by the way that you and I live our lives. So what are you doing that shows that you have been built up into a pleasing aroma and a sacrifice pleasing to God, Romans 12, 1 and 2? If people were to look at you, what do they see? Do they see a rock of offense, Romans 14, one who's continually causing other people to stumble in sin because of the way you live your life? Or do they look at you and people stumble over your holiness? Because people will stumble over one of the two. They either, they, they're either drawn to you because you lead them to sin, or they're drawn oftentimes away from you because they, they think that you're too holy. You ever heard of that? Man, you're just a holy roller. You're a Bible thumper. I mean, you got them all right. You know those names? Yes, and that's what it is. You're a rock of offense. Then verse 6 says, But for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. So he goes, here it is. You are being built up into a spiritual house. You are all living stones. But living stones don't matter without a chief cornerstone. And so he goes, Behold, I'm laying in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone that's chosen and precious. And that cornerstone is Jesus. And, and Peter is not telling us something new in, in this, this part right here that we don't understand or that these Jews that he's writing to don't understand. 
What he is simply saying is, is that God has always promised that there would be a cornerstone and that it would be fulfilled in a messianic hope. But let me tell you, it is fulfilled in Jesus. But Jesus is the cornerstone, and that's what it said in Psalm 118. So Psalm 118, the whole thing is about Jesus being the cornerstone. In Isaiah chapter 8, Jesus is mentioned there as going to be one who is going to be the stumbling stone. In Isaiah 28, he's going to be the one who is the foundation stone. In Daniel chapter 2, he's going to be the supernatural stone. In 1 Corinthians 10, 4, you have an Old Testament reference there that says, and, and Jesus is the rock that gave Israel water in the wilderness. So you look and you see all of these Old Testament hopes about the one who is to come that would be the rock of offense and ultimately the chief cornerstone. Do you see that? That's an incredible thing. Now look at this, verse 6, the latter part of it says, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So in essence, it says, there is one who is the chief cornerstone. He is the great foundation in which we lay our lives upon. He builds us up into a spiritual house. And if we put our faith in the solid rock of Jesus as the chief cornerstone and ultimately as our foundation, then we will not be put to shame. So the hope is for all of these Jewish believers who are running for their lives is this. Yes, you may stare death down to the face. Yes, you may be persecuted. Yes, they may torment you. Yes, they may say malicious things about you. Yes, they may harm your children. Yes, they may harm your wife. Yes, you will have hardships. But listen, hold fast. Why? Because there will be a day in which you are no longer put to shame. There will be a day in which Jesus will hold you fast. There is an eternal hope to come. There is more that, that will be rewarded to you upon your suffering. And so suffer well. Do you see that? That's the idea. Then verse 7, it says, So the honor is for those who believe, but for those who do not believe, that's the stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. And so think about this. You have a cornerstone. And the question is, is what is the cornerstone there for? The cornerstone is that chief stone that brings things together. Now think about it. If it's a cornerstone, then it's in the what? I, hold on, I'm sorry. That was a really tricky question. So let me start it over, okay? If it's in the corner, it's the cornerstone, right? So if it's the cornerstone, it's in the... Okay, now we've only got like 30% participation and nobody in the back said anything. So let's start over one more time. If it's the cornerstone, it's in the Now the question is, is why? Because you think, oh, this is just a really cool analogy Peter uses. It's the cornerstone, it's in the corner. Oh, it's the, you know, he's the, the rock. And, and so we can build our house on the rock. I mean, you've heard that, Matthew 7, that you build your house on the rock, not on the sinking sand. When the storms come in, when the winds blow and the waters rise, guess what? The rock will not be what? Blown away. But look, the cornerstone is more than that. The cornerstone is the stone that brings two walls together. And so what I want you to realize is Peter says the, the cornerstone, the chief one, Jesus brings, get this, the Jews and the Gentiles alike together. He brings two people and he makes them into one priesthood, one nation, one hope, one faith, one Lord, one calling, one baptism, and only one who is God, Father of all, in all, one over all, can do that. And he does it through his son, Jesus, who is the chief 
cornerstone. Now, Jesus does that. He brings people together, and yet there will be many who don't want that. And so they'll find him as a stumbling block. And so for us in here, we go, I've put my faith in Jesus. We go, wow, what an incredible thing. He is our cornerstone. We put our faith in him. He is our solid rock. He is our firm foundation. He's our tower of refuge. You've got all these things that you go, wow. That's incredible. But if you are not a believer, Jesus is none of those things. He's not your chief cornerstone. He's not your rock of foundation. He's not your strong tower. He is not your hope and refuge. He is not the solid rock of your foundation that will not be blown away. And so you don't see Jesus as a good thing, but you actually see it as a stone that should be rejected. It's almost to take the cornerstone and to lay it out in the middle of a pasture and let, just grass grow up around it. If you're a redneck guy out here and you mow occasionally with your your tractor, you know, you're out there and you're mowing a pasture that's like four foot tall. And every single inch that you take, you take a deep breath. And the reason why is because you have no idea what you're about to mow. And inevitably, every time you mow a new pasture, you hit a rock or a piece of concrete that the former owner put out there for you. And then you hop off your tractor and you're mad and you're yelling. And the reason why is because you came across a stone that was ginormous. And you're thinking, what in the world would you put that thing right here in the middle of the pasture for? And that's Jesus. Jesus is the one who for many is the chief cornerstone, but for other, he's the rock of offense. He's laying out in the middle of the pasture and people stumble over him. They don't see him, they don't recognize him, and when they hit him, they don't like him. And so Jesus is the chief cornerstone for many, and for many of us, we praise God for that, and then there are many of us who we have a problem with God because of what Jesus has done, and he is a stumbling stone or a rock of offense. That's verse eight, look at it. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And so the question is, is do you stumble over Jesus, or do you stand on Jesus? Verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so in God's foreknowledge, he knows every single one of us in this room the day that we were born, Psalm 139. He knows the hand breath, uh, the hand breath of our life, how short of it it is. He knows when your day will come to an end, Psalm 39. He also knows the day in which you will enter either into salvation or ultimately eternal damnation. He knows everything about us. And he says here, there are many that stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so in God's foreknowledge, he knows many of us who will be saved. And in God's foreknowledge, he knows many of us who will not. And the question is, is why are we not? Because we disobey the word and ultimately we do not stand on the solid rock of Jesus and his word. And so he goes, for those of you that don't stand on God, that you don't see the holiness of God, the holiness of his word, that you don't abide by the decrees and the laws, that you sit in the sit, the, the, the center of sinners and mockers, Psalm 1, he goes, you'll miss it. Matter of fact, he tells us two different times in Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, almost a similar thing. Listen to this. He, he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but... 
The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Right there, he gives you a picture. He goes, I know there's going to be many that your salvation, and I know that there's even more that don't. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and look what he says to them. Jesus said to them, you've never read it in the scriptures that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's talking to them about the same thing Peter's writing about. He goes, do you not realize that Jesus has become the cornerstone? Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people reducing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it'll crush him. Think about this. You and I either fall on top of the stone and we say, I'm willing to lay my life down on top of this precious stone chosen and beloved by God, or you get to lay up under it and be crushed. What an incredible analogy right there that Jesus uses. So in a sense, you'll either lay down on the stone and you'll find it as a blessing, or you'll be crushed by the stone and you'll find it as a curse. That's the picture here. Jesus is not everything that you and I have told our kids about. You go, I don't understand what you mean. Listen to me. There are many of us in our churches today that we, quite frankly, find great emptiness and very little delight in the satisfaction of knowing Jesus and being involved in community through the church. And the reason why is because we bought this little lie that Jesus, all he wanted to do was give us heaven when we were nine years old. And see, that's what we do. We spend our lifetime trying to convince people how much Jesus will do things for us. I mean, that's what the church has done. They have taken vacation Bible schools and they have spent entire themes around a child praying one prayer when they're eight or nine or 11 years old, only to leave them emptyless and void because they did not understand the suffering that would come through the gospel. We think that it's cute and clever and that in some ways it even gives us great peace and joy to pray with our children when they're six and have them ask Jesus in our heart to forgive us our sins because we want to have heaven. What's interesting is, is if you look through the scriptures, never once is salvation directly correlated with heaven, ever. Not one time, not one time do you see salvation correlated right there with heaven. Like pray, receive Christ, follow him, and you receive heaven. But every time you see salvation, you see what? Death, cost, losing your life so that you'll gain it. And right here, we see that Jesus is a rock of offense. And here's why. Because if you have Jesus, most likely you're going to be pushed aside by many others. He says, what good is it if you gain the whole world and you forfeit your soul? What good is it if you have all the friends in the world, if you have all the pleasure of this world, yet you forfeit your soul? So he's giving us a, a question, a challenge here. Do you want salvation simply for the means of heaven? Or do you want salvation for the means of the great high priest, the one who laid his life down for you? Because those are two totally different things, which I think is one of the challenges we have when our kids go to college and they depart from the faith, it's because they never had the faith. Yes, they did pray a prayer, and yes, they were baptized, but the, the goal of salvation is never baptism. 
And then you, you begin to look at your own life and you begin to ask yourself, well, what, what do I have going on in my life? The question you must ask yourself is simply this. If I love Jesus, am I bearing much fruit? Is there something different in my life? And if the question is yes, then you need to know what God says about you. What he says about those of us gathered in this room who have put our faith in Jesus and have salvation in him and we're bearing much fruit. This is what he says. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race. You got that? Look at that. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, interesting enough, Peter is giving us terms there that refer to one person, and that is the nation of Israel. He goes, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All of these things are speaking of terms that the nation of Israel was known for. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6, it is noted that Israel was a peculiar treasure and that, he was, that they were a kingdom of priests. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20, it says they were a people of inheritance. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says they were a holy people chosen above all in the earth. In Genesis chapter 12, they were called out for God, given land, people, possession, name, and notoriety. They were God's chosen people. Now, what's incredible is, as Peter says, now, because you have a chief cornerstone, no longer is the stone meant simply to hold up the wall of Judaism, but the wall exists not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile alike. And if anyone comes to him through Christ, the chief mediator, you and I are what? Now, a priesthood. That's pretty incredible to think about. You and I are a priesthood. We're a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's my friends, what the church should be. And so let me explain something to you real quickly. The reason that I harped on this idea of salvation through one simple little prayer is not saying that, that salvation can't come that way. Because salvation comes when we have a simple belief in a holy God and his son Jesus, Romans 10. It's nothing difficult, but salvation is not for the purpose of simply eternal gain, but for a shepherd and who what? Governs and leads our life and brings us into community. Think about it. It is Christ and community. Understand? Think about it. If you have Christ and you have no community, then, then what you have is, is some idea of religion that you've made up in your mind. If you have community and know Christ, you have a country club. But if you have Christ and the community, you have a church that's following Jesus. Do you understand? And now the question is, is what is the church? The church is what Jesus is calling all of us into. And that is a living, active, worshiping community that regular gathers together around God's gifts and the spiritual gifts that he gives us. We eat communal uh, meals of his body and blood, remembering what Christ has done for us. We sing together. We pray together. We confess regularly together. We grieve and we heal together. We will eventually die together. What's interesting is how many people have the notion of church as something that I go to and attend and I leave, but that's not communal at all. Matter of fact, I've even heard it said many times is that if you expect me to go to one of these journey groups and tell people about my problems, then get this, you're, you're dead wrong. And I'm like, you can't have Christianity without it. 
you and I are not meant to do life alone. We're not meant to live lives in privacy. And that's what we think, right? We were late. Our, my faith is private. No, your faith was never called to be private through the scriptures. It may be personal, but it's not private. And there's a distinct difference between personal and private. So we should be praying together, confessing together, grieving, ultimately dying together. The church is about God giving us pastors to equip us and lead us. It's about giving us brothers and sisters in the faith. It's about giving us children to teach. Oh, wow, what a blessing children should be. I had a young man yesterday. We were talking about a couple of things and hadn't seen him in a long time. I just asked him, I was like, hey man, you're about to get married. And he's like, yeah. I was like, man, are y'all thinking about children in a few years? And he's like, whew. I was like, what? He's like, she wants them, but I don't want them. And I'm like, man, do you realize? And then I went into a little rant, okay? And this is what it was. I was like, do you realize the Muslim faith is growing exponentially right now? And I said, you know what? Most people think that the Muslim faith is growing because they share their faith better. And that may be true, but the reason the Muslim faith is exponentially growing faster in Christianity is because Christianity have now begun to see children as a burden. Matter of fact, modern Christianity is this. Give me heaven, a big home, the car I want to drive, the dog I want to like, and if children come along, then we'll deal with them. But we have forgotten to see that the church is the blessing, that it's community, that it's communal, that we don't need stuff or treasures on earth because all of this rust and destroy and thieves breaking and steal, but we should build an eternal what home and ultimately be working towards that, that children are a blessing. Why? Because we get the opportunity to share the love of God that we have experienced with children and with anyone else that we come in contact with. Do you understand? Listen, when I had Brady seven years ago and Kelly and I experienced that, it was the first time in my life that I think I finally understood the depth of the love that God had for me. I can't explain it. I, I, I mean, if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. But when you hold your, your firstborn that, that first time and then you have a second one, you're like, oh my goodness, I don't think I can love the second one as much as I do the first one. You ever had that problem? Yeah. And then you hold that second one. You're like, God, thank you. And I look at my children as we're having this conversation and they're running around acting like a bunch of banshees. And then I have this little four-year-old girl, beautiful blonde hair, blue eyes, looks just like her mama. And I mean, she's beautiful. It has nothing to do with daddy. When she comes up to me, we're in the middle of this conversation and she goes, daddy, I love you. I'm like, see, dude, that's what you're missing out on. Someone who loves you unconditionally. And it's a demonstration of the gospel. And that's a gift of God's community in our lives. Like, that's what he reminds us of. He gives us brothers and sisters of the faith. He gives us elders to emulate. He gives us less than likable people to hang out with. Think about that. Christianity is a bunch of people who don't have much in common and quite frankly, sometimes don't like each other. But we move through, why? Because of one, one thing that brings us together, the commonality of the gospel through Christ. And the ability to 1 John 4, love others because Christ has first loved us. That, my friends, is what God has called us to. Does that sound anything like what you're experiencing? And my prayer is yes. And I think for many of us, it's like, no, I may, maybe I should, but I'm a little scared of it. I'm a little, I just don't know. I mean, for, for some of us, we just don't want it. And that's okay. Jesus is a stumbling stone. But the reason that we want it is because of verse 10. 
The reason that we live in community, the reason we appreciate the church, the reason that we understand salvation, the reason that we grow up from, from pure spiritual milk to meat, the reason we take steps is because of verse 10. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why is all of that happening? Because of verse 9. Because that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we proclaim God, we sing to him, we delight in him. Why? Because of his excellencies and because of the fact that we were once not a people and we weren't, were not forgiven, but now we are a people and now we are forgiven. Amen? Like that's why we sing. That's why all of us big, burly, tough guys who have experienced salvation can utter a few words about the excellencies of Jesus in our singing. It's the reason that we don't have to act tough. It's the reason that even though we're tough in our business and we're tough with all of our guys, it's the reason that for a few hours in a week, we can just become not so tough and that we can raise our hands and we can raise our voice and we can lift our eyes to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords and go, God, you are worthy of all of our praise and all of my honor and all that I have. And it's the reason we sing. It's the reason that we give mercy. It's the reason that we love the unlovable. Why? Because you used to didn't belong and now you belong. That's pretty simple, isn't it? And then it says, And beloved, I urge you as sojourners, sojourners and exiles to abstain from the past of the flesh which waged war against your soul. So Peter, this is it. Like, like, here's the message, okay? I'm going to boil it down for you as simple as I can. You were once in darkness and now you're called to live in light. You were once far off and removed from God, yet he brought you into the inheritance of God an inheritance that never spoils or fades away. Amen? What a gift. And he goes, now, guys, as you run for your lives at the hands of Rome, would you just remember to not act like them? Pretty simple, isn't it? He goes, if you're going to proclaim the excellencies of God on one hand, let's just remember that on the other one, that, that, that we should be holy. Now, listen, who's telling you this? Who's telling us this? Who's telling all of these Jewish believers this that are running for their lives? Peter, the very guy who says, I know that I've been a hypocrite. I know that I've slandered. I, yes, I get it. I denied Jesus three times after I told him I wouldn't. Yes, I did happen to cut the guy's ear off in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes, that was me. Yes, I have yelled at a little girl who questioned my faith. Yes, that was me. Yes, I have not always been the picture-perfect model of the faith. Yes, I agree. Now, this is Peter. And so, listen, the question is not, are you the picture-perfect model of the faith? The question is, are you going to continue to sin that grace may increase? It's almost like this. When you get up in the morning and you're walking down the sidewalk, do you expect to trip? Because most Christians I talk to, they expect to trip. They have this thing in their life that they've done for so many years that they think they can't break the stronghold of, and so they get up in the morning and they go, I know I'm going to trip. But those who are in Christ, walking according to the word, in the foundation of communion of Scripture, who are regularly confessing one another, who are living out the life of authenticity, called out of darkness into the wonderful light, they don't enjoy the darkness. And though they are, they are tempted, yes, they don't always trip. And so instead of asking the question, am I going to get up and trip today? They ask the question, yeah, I may trip today, but I don't plan to. And there's a huge difference. 
for most Christians that you talk to, they go, you know what, I've got this habit that I can't break. i got this one sin pattern, and I, it's just me. I'm not, I've been doing it for, for 40 years. I've been doing it for, you know, 400 days. I mean, whatever. Christ is all-sufficient. And so he says, abstain from the passion of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Simply put, Christianity is not a Willy Wonka ticket or a Polar Express pass on the train. It's not a ticket to be punched, but what it is, it's about being a Christ follower in a daily pursuit of Jesus every second, every minute, every hour, every day of every month, of every year, for years to come. And I'm not sure many of y'all are at this moment like, yeah, I'm excited about that. But that's the call. That's what God's calling us to. And if you wonder what that looks like, you can go and read Colossians 3. Pastor Archie, he read just a little glimpse of it earlier, but if you read verses 1 through 17 of Colossians 3, that is exactly what Peter's talking about here when he says abstain from the lusts and the passions of this earth. And then he says in verse 12, and as you're running for your lives, as you're trying to to honor God and, and not be slaves of the flesh and run back to your sin patterns. Then he says in verse 12, and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. These people called the Christians were being accused of great crimes in the early church. They were accused of burning the city of Rome. They were accused of usurping the authority of Rome. They were accused of drinking the flesh and the blood of Jesus and even having rituals that would drink flesh and blood. After all, Jesus said, this is my body broken for you, eat in remembrance of me. Drink in remembrance of me, right? So they thought all these early Christians were cannibalistic. They heard that. They said that their agape feasts were nothing but wild orgies. They said that they were antisocial because they didn't want to have anything to do with the weddings and the feasts that were happening in the culture. They abstained from some of the things that they used to formally do. They were called atheists because they left the pantheon of gods aside and they pursued just one God. They were accused of multiple things. You ever been accused of something you didn't do? You ever been wrongly spoken about? Well, here's the deal. I love Barclay. He writes this, The striking fact of history is that by their lives, the Christians actually did defeat the slanders of the heathen. In the early part of the 3rd century, Celsus made the most famous and most systematic attack of all Christians in which he accused them of ignorance and foolishness and superstition of all kind. But he never accused them of immorality. I want to close with this story. In 2004, it was the one year in which uh, I took a break from, uh, of ministry season. I'd been in ministry about four years, and uh, I decided that I was going to coach and teach for one year. And uh, it was one year because I decided that I wasn't meant to coach and teach, okay? Uh, part of that reason is because that year, it was 2004, my dad was the football coach here in Wills Point, and uh, I thought, man, we were going to be really good that year. We were coming off a couple of pretty good seasons, and we started out 0-6, 0-6, miserable, miserable. And uh, man, when you're 0-6, nobody likes you, understand? Like your wife won't hardly even get in the same bed with you. Like that's how bad it is, okay? And, and everybody thinks you're a loser. Everybody doesn't really want to deal with you. And I remember for the very first time in my life understanding a little bit of where my dad came from on the coaching end. I remember the things that were swirling in the community. I remember the things that were being said uh, about my dad 
and about all of his coaching staff. I remember the threats of potentially being fired. I, I remember it. And there were things that were being said from, you guys have a terrible offense. Man, y'all need a different defensive scheme. I remember the things of saying, you know, um, y'all lack discipline. Uh, y'all don't win enough. Y'all had too many, lose, you know, too many losses. And, and y'all, you're not just losing, but you're losing big. And I remember all this. And I remember it creeping into our team. I remember the dysfunction and the dysfaction that was happening. And it was just quarreled and all of these things. And we had about six kids quit after that 0-6 start. And after that, we, we went uh, one out and went two deep in the playoffs. And our team just began to get better. But I remember after that 0-6 start, it was a Tuesday morning. And I remember sitting in my dad's office. He was behind his de- desk. I had a conference. And I was sitting in the chair, and I grabbed a cup of coffee. And my dad always had a cup of coffee. And I said, Dad, how are you doing? He goes, Brandon, I'm not doing good. And a tear just dropped from his eye. And he goes, this is rough. And I said, there's a lot of people after me. And I said, what's a lot of people? A lot of people. And so I said, well, I said, here's the deal, Dad. I said, number one, I said, in the kingdom of God, you don't get any credit for ball games won. You just don't. And he knew that, but I said, Dad, can I just encourage you with something? I said, there's a verse that really has become a theme verse for me. And I said, I just want to share it with you because I think that this will give you some perspective. And I read him, 1 Peter 2, 12. And it simply says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Listen, there are going to be people that say negative things. It's happening here about leadership in our church. Why? Because we're people. And we tend to be critical, right? And that's okay. But here's the deal. What I want you to understand is that even though somebody may say malicious things about you, they may say something that, you know what, he's not a very good boss. He's not that great of a leader, man. He doesn't ever communicate with us. Whatever they may say, if they talk about you and they may say harmful things about you, at the end of the day, the question is, is this, they may not agree with your philosophy, the way you lead, the way you run your business. Matter of fact, there's some really good friends that I'm pastored with that we're not going to agree on philosophy of ministry. We just do it different ways, and that's okay. But at the end of the day, they won't question my integrity. At the end of the day, they won't question my character. And that's the one thing that, as Christians, we have. You can choose to live immoral lives, and you can hang out with all of those that want to do that, or you can say, they may not agree with me, they may not always like me, they may not like the way that I do things, but at the end of the day, they know that my character is above reproach, and that, my friends, is the way that a Christian should live. Understand? And so let me just end with this. A long-lasting pursuit of holiness can never, ever be separated from a long-lasting stand on the foundation of Jesus Christ. If you would claim that he's your chief cornerstone, then you have to stand on him. And if you stand on him, you will become holy. Because he says, for I am holy, you shall become holy. And my prayer is, is that we would know that the church is about Christ and community. And you have to have both. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this morning. And God, I pray that you would challenge our thinking. Lord, I... I realize there were some things said today that may even cause a few people to question a handful of things. 
But Lord, I pray that you would stir on their hearts and that, God, that you would show them that being a priesthood and a chosen people is about trusting in you. And I pray, Father, that if we trust in you, that we would bear much fruit, that people would see the evidence of life change. I pray that you would grow us up to strong and mature men and women, men and women who exemplify the character of God, and that even though people may question some of the things we do, maybe the decisions that we make, that they'll never question our character, that they never look at us and see us as a moral and ungodly people. And so, God, help us to live for you. We thank you, God, that we are now being built up into a spiritual house, and that, God, that we are living stones that have been made alive in Christ, the chief cornerstone. We thank you, God, that you have brought those who are Jews and Gentiles alike, anyone who would believe in their heart and confess their mouth that he is Lord, the way they would be saved. And so, God, thank you for salvation. Thank you for soul transformation. And thank you, God, for giving us eternity to live with you. But, God, I pray eternity is not merely our goal, but an opportunity to celebrate the goodness of goal after a faithful life well lived. In Jesus' name, amen.